Hi, my name is Christine Estima. Um, I'm a writer and novelist and author. Um, and I've been doing this game for many years. I got my first publication when I was 18, and I'm 37 now. So, <laughs> 18. Yeah, when I was 18, I got my first publication and like never looked back. <laughs> do you remember what you wrote? I do, actually. Um, it was so when I was a teenager, I was taking these improv classes at the Second City mm -hmm. at its location with Timson's Playhouse on like Blue Jay's Way, which is now it's moved from there. It's not there anymore. Yeah. But in the 90s it was there and they had um an official uh i guess newsletter or newspaper that that second city would put out and uh i was since i was in one of the teen classes um i just said to them i was like do you want me to write like a first person essay on what it's like to be a teen in one of the teen classes and they're like yeah and then it was published and it went out and I was like that was my very first publication when I was 18 and like I was like hooked <laughs> so that was your first was like my writing thing yeah but I mean, I'd been writing before yeah I was the editor of my high school newspaper okay and like I had won like a short story contest as oh, wow. like a young girl and, yeah. and stuff like that but in terms of professional stuff I wouldn't call my high school newspaper sure, sure. like a professional publication you always wanted to be a writer yeah when I was a uh, when I was a little girl uh, I remember I was in grade one and we all had to like you know write short stories and people were turning in four pages or three pages and I turned in 44 <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah I always I always wanted I, I I think of myself less of a writer and more of a storyteller I suppose because okay. that's kind of it transfers over into like different things right yeah. so I also do like live storytelling and spoken word mm -hmm. and that is it's storytelling but it's not written but it, it's it feels it's, it's very connected it's like they're they're all like um laced so yeah. it's, it's hard to separate the two um and like i've been a playwright i've had like about five or six plays produced mm -hmm. and so yeah, anything that's kind of remotely related to writing <laughs> I you're living the life I, I tend to do yeah i suppose <laughs> did you like how how old were you when you knew you know storytelling or or maybe writing was maybe your first um sort of craft that you learned like when did you know this is it this is what i want to do it, it it's interesting because i always knew there was never a oh, okay. moment i didn't know i remember when i was a little girl or even when i was a teenager there were so many people who were like i don't know what i want to be when i grow up and they would go yeah. to those you know at high schools they would have like these fairs where like sure. job markets would come mm -hmm. to you and you could think what do i want to be yeah I, I was never one of those people that didn't know what i wanted to be okay. i always wanted you to be. always knew yeah i always knew i was always writing stories i was always reading whatever i could get my hands on i was going to i remember so i grew up in quebec okay. and there was this little there was this conference for for young adult authors um and it was held at mcgill and i was like maybe grade grade i was nine or ten so it's like what grade four grade wow. five and i remember going to mcgill i was like this little girl it's like 1990 dragging was, your mom or dad no no you? no it was a, like this if oh, you, the school okay. the school could if if not everyone in the school went but if you wanted to go the school would facilitate that so my school wow. took me to mcgill and i was it was like 91 or 92 and i was just surrounded by all these authors who were writing for young adults and you know just being immersed amongst literature it was always like I just like my favorite thing is to look at like a blank piece of paper and a really sharp pencil. It just really gets me excited. Really? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was always one of those people. And like I've been keeping journals since I have my first journal was in 1998. No, no, no. Sorry. 1988. Let's go back. 88. 1988. I started journaling. I was seven years old and I still have that. Do you, journal. I was going to ask you if you still have it. I still have it. It's like it's, it's in like this like <laughs> how old it is. It was kept in like a wooden box. <laughs> Oh wow! The journal had like a lock in it, and whatever. So it was mom or dad. Did they ever tell you like keep a journal or write or no? My it was just something. My you parents did? were not very artistic. Okay. My, my father. Um, so you was, didn't pick it up from them or anything like that. Not at all. Okay. No, no, no. My father was like an accountant. My mother was a homemaker and the, not very artistic at all. And I was always really jealous of people who had artistic families because I felt like they got y encouragement when they were much younger than I did and I kind of had to navigate my own way mm -hmm. into the arts because I didn't I didn't know how to get into it even like at the job fairs there was never like how to become an here author are the steps. here a writer it was always like if you want to be an engineer if you want to work in insurance if you want to yeah. become a, a solicitor and a barrister there was never anything about 
how to get into the arts. And so I kind of ah. had to, by hook or by crook, I had to finagle my way into it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Do you remember your first, like outside of maybe mom or dad reading you nursery rhymes or Dr. Seuss books, or do you remember like your first book that you read or that you, you purchased yourself? That I purchased myself? Yeah. You know, I, I do actually. Um, at that point, uh, young Authors Conference in McGill, um, I bought a book, and I, I still have this book to this day. It changed the way I thought about writing. Hmm. It, it was called Two Moons in August, and it was a novel by Martha Brooks. She's Canadian. Okay. And it's set in, like, northern Ontario, and this girl, and, like, her uh, her mother has died in, like, a TB sanatorium, and hmm. and it's about, like, and she's, like, my, she was my age at the time, like, 13, and, like, she falls in love with her next-door neighbor, basically. But... All the books I had read up until that point, you know, you know, at school, they'd have those scholastic drives, yeah, and you would yeah, get books yeah. like that. All the books that I would get from those scholastic drives, they yeah. were, especially the ones for like young girls, sure. were very superficial. They were like a hundred ways to flirt, you what? know, like they were, they were, they were like, they were, sure. they were BS books. You know what I mean? They were, they, it, was, right. it was, it was total crap. Um, they were, it was, it for um, a young girl, you know, growing up, you think, oh, I'm supposed to care about shopping and I'm supposed to care mm. about boys and whatever. And then I read this book and it was about the pain that can come with youth. And the way that it was written was, you know, a, a lot of YA books can um, talk to their readers as if they're stupid and they're not smart, mm. even, even if they're like, you know, 10, 11, 12, it's, sure. it, it writes as if they're not very smart. But kids are smart you know kids are they're mm -hmm. with it they're very savvy and it was written in a way that didn't pretend that like you know i'm so smart and i'm talking to it wasn't didactic yeah, at, yeah. at all and i really appreciated that and it totally changed the way i thought about writing and i still have that book and like years later so maybe like in the early 2000s i found martha brooks i found she had like a website or something and i emailed her and i told her your book made me want to like pursue being an author yeah, and yeah. she was like she wrote back and she was like, your, your email was so well written. She's like, you obviously should be <laughs> an author. And it was, it was so great. Like years later because of the internet to connect with this woman in this book. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 T t speaking about emails, um, I, I think I've become very bad at emails because of social media, like capitalization using, <laughs> you know, instead of like, I think I texted you. I said, see you. I put the letter C in you. Yeah, I know. You know sometimes I, <laughs> Are you, what are your thoughts on the way people use grammar and social media and, and in emails? You, yeah. You, what that's side what, are you on? I actually, I think about this a lot because I'm actually writing a piece about this for a newspaper. Oh, it's okay. going to come out in, in November. Um, but basically, uh, the language that we employ now is very disposable. Like we mm. don't really, we don't put any thought or care into how we write an email or how we send off a text message. Like, you can now send you can send off a text message in seconds, right? And you can sure. say like, you know, you up, DTF, yeah, <laughs> and like BTW. We now speak in like, you know, we yeah. What are they and now? Emojis, assume, yeah, right? and emojis. Like you don't have to say anything. You can just yeah. say it. You can just put like an eggplant, and everyone yeah. knows what that means, right? Or you can put a peach, and everyone knows what that means. Yeah. But you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, especially during wartime. Um, letters could take two weeks to months to arrive. And so people would pack like their hearts and their souls into letters. Mm. They'd write up the side of the page. They're writing on both sides of the page. And like, cause they never knew when they were going to hear from their loved ones again, yeah. especially if the postal service or the telegraph office had been dismantled. And so language used to be, I always like to say to people, we used to throw rocks at our lovers windows and now we text. And now we text. Yeah. yeah, like we used to put effort into how we speak to each other. Now you'll you'll never see that in, in movies anymore. Or where, where the guy or the girl goes to the, you know, at the house. At and the window. And like pebbles. Pings. Or even like say anything where he's holding up the boom box. Like yeah. that's not going to happen anymore, no. right? At the same time, I say that, but at the same time, I do kind of appreciate the fluidity of language. And mm. I do kind of appreciate that now if you were to show, like uh, you can send a text message that says BTW... Um, eggplant emoji, um, bay, and then I-D-G-A-F. And everybody's going to know what that means. Mm. But if you show that text message to somebody who lived 100 years ago, it would look like a foreign language to yeah. them. So I kind of actually appreciate how we now speak and like, you know, shorten, like we, we can speak in like initials in a way. And 
we all understand what that means. There's something really interesting to me about that. You know, huh. that like it's like this collective consciousness that like, yeah, language is fluid, language change, language changes, and that's okay. Are we, so. are we not communicating properly anymore, do you think? Um, I think uh, it, it, communication is lacking, hmm. for sure. Yeah. But I think that the way that we do communicate, even if there's a lot of crossed wires, the way that we do communicate is super interesting. You yeah. know? And like it's, it's, um, it's only going to go further in that direction. The, the reason I ask is I, I know you've, you've collected <coughs> these, these letters mm-hmm. uh, from Europe, like wartime letters? Would that yeah, be, that a lot be of correct? wartime letters. Um, yeah. and, and you talk about, um, you know, this letter is going to take weeks to get to the recipient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, people are pouring their hearts out. They want to make sure they say everything they want to say. Yeah. Uh, and these days, you're right. It's like quick text back and forth. Yeah. Um, like what's like one seems to be like, you know, you can read one of these letters uh, and you, you know exactly what that person is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you get texts and you go, I'm, I'm not really sure. And there's yeah. TV shows that that spend a whole episode trying to figure out what exactly yeah. did that person mean by this text? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I think the other thing, too, is that, like, when you upgrade your phone, all those messages are lost. You know what I mean? Oh. They don't last forever. Whereas a letter, oh, right. like, yeah. all these letters that I've collected, you mm-hmm. know, some of them, are like, I have letters from the First World War, so that's, like, 100 years old. And so, like... There's that is uh, something tangible that unless it burns or I lose it or whatever, it will last forever, you yeah. know, um, before it disintegrates. But yeah. that'll take hundreds of years. You know what I mean? We have letters that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago in museums. Right. That's right. And you can see things that were carved up on the wall in like Egypt so that were thousands of years ago. Yeah. But a text message, um, an email. A snap in there, right? That, they, disappear. they disappear and you'll, you'll never see them again. So there's something about the longevity of the way we used to communicate as well that huh. we, we don't have that anymore. Um, there is a lot of room for miscommunication when you're talking, you know, like FYI, yeah. <laughs> OMG, WTF, like the, uh, that can lead to a lot of miscommunication. Um, but I don't think we're actually going to go back in the, uh, in the, in the way we were. We're just going to no. keep going in that direction. So, so. <laughs> I'm afraid of five years from now what it looks like. It's going to be a very minority report where you can like read everybody's minds. Yes, no, one, like, no one speaks. Yeah, exactly. You're just going to, I'm just going to have like a chip behind my ear and you'll have a chip behind your ear and we'll just have to like download each other's like thoughts. You won't even have to speak yeah. anymore. So, wow. Yeah. What have you, I'm, I'm curious what, what you've. If you've learned anything from these these letters from a hundred years ago, or you know, back in World War II, about about life, and I, you know, a, a lot. I I think I, I remember you telling me it's it's like husband writing to wife, or you know, fiance writing to fiance. I'm curious mm-hmm. what you've learned about life, what you've learned about love back then. Um, a, a lot of things. Mostly, mostly I've learned mostly about relationships and mm. the way that. Uh, people spoke to each other back then that we don't really do anymore. The, what shocked me the most was the lack of subterfuge. You know, now when when you're dating somebody, yeah. everybody has on their A game and they're holding their cards close to their chest. Yes. And like uh, people are playing games and like, not to say that that didn't happen back then because of course it did. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine receiving a letter now where someone says to me, I feel your love around me like a protection and a caress. Um, you, you, I'm writing to tell you that you were, you are, and you will be the woman, the most beautiful, the most soft, and the most important of my life. Wow. Those are direct quotes from letters that, that I've bought. Wow. You know? People don't say that to each other now. Now they're just like, you know, I have received some really nice letters in my life. Sure. But a lot of the time it's like, you know, um, Christine, you're really lovely. Christine, you're really sweet. This, that, and whatever. But no one says anything to me like your love surrounds me, me. Like, like a protection oh and a crest. <laughs> and you know, I'm reading these letters on the flea market, and I'm like, nah, and I'm like crying. And the vendors are looking at me like, are you okay? And I'm like, how much for this letter? <laughs> I never even like, knew people sold letters. I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's something that a lot of people don't realize. So at the flea market. The big sellers are antique jewelry, um, old cameras, typewriters, clothes, uh, purses, vinyl records. Those are huge sellers. 
letters and old photographs are not a big seller so they're priced to move mm -hmm. so i i've bought entire stacks of epistolary tomes for like a couple dollars wow and like and the, and the reason is is because so these end up on the flea market because you know when someone passes away the family will hire like an estate liquidator and they come That's in, right. they empty out the house so that the family can sell the property. Yeah. And then it's where well, they have all the stuff that they, they go to their vendors on the flea market. They like they do the two roles. It's a dual role. And then they just sell it. Right. So the vendors haven't gone through the letters. The family hasn't gone through the letters. You know, they don't most of the time they don't even know where they exist. And there's yeah. me on my knees and digging through cardboard moving boxes that they've just placed on the floor, like gathering up all these letters and wow. photographs. And it's like the, the stuff that like you that you get that like I, I feel if I didn't save them from mm -hmm. these boxes they'd end up in the scrap heap and most often they do you know sure. like they were forgotten by their family they're not written by famous people so they're not you know important to history <coughs> so people just like they're just like yeah um in, in Europe I remember buying like entire stacks for like a couple couple euros like five euros mm. tops and like they didn't care i remember buying the first world war letter that i mentioned before yeah. um i bought that in brussels for 50 cents and it was at the bottom of a box that it was raining and so the box was getting soaked yeah. and if i hadn't saved it it would have been completely destroyed huh. 50 cents he didn't he didn't care he just looked at it and was like yeah didn't care yeah i've bought like you know telegrams from like the interwar years same thing it was like two euros like they didn't care huh. it's crazy you know i bought i bought a letter in vienna that has um it was stamped on the back uh by uh oberkommando de wehrmacht which means the military high command in german and it has the swastika and the eagle on oh. it and it says geoffnet which means opened and so the letter as it crossed a border was opened by the nazis and they read it oh. before you know i have that i bought that i think i paid like two and a half euros for that like wow yeah like they don't care like, people don't care so it's it's like for me it's part curation yeah. and like saving them but at the other hand it's just like they're just written in, in a manner that we don't see now so That's have you ever uh i don't know would it be strange to exhibit these letters so I don't know if it would be strange. I wonder if there is actually a market for it because they're not written by famous people. We see a lot sure. of books these days that are like, you know, love letters from famous men and love mm. letters like, you know, like uh, like Keats and 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 Braun. Those are like really famous. And uh, Napoleon and Josephine, those okay. are really famous letters. But like some guy who lived in Brussels 75 years ago, just because he's writing from an exciting time period, doesn't mean that there's an audience for that. And so a, a huge part of me is like, maybe, like I think it's interesting. And everybody that I've spoken to Letters about from it, World War One or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I think. I think yeah. that's interesting. But I don't know if there's actually a market for it. And so I, I have a literary agent and I was speaking with him about it. And mm -hmm. he was like, yeah, I'm going to have to ask Granny's like, because I don't really know if there's a market for this. Like, I don't know what publisher would want to go with this. Well, I'm sure there know? is. I don't know where I was, Quebec or somewhere. And, you know, walking into this house and, and I, I think they were it was soldiers or something like that. And you would hear stories like people reading letters or stories about you know, just regular, quote unquote, you know, regular people, not famous people. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there's a, a market, you know, small yeah. or specialized as, as yeah. it may be. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, people that would, would would want to hear or read about like real people. Yeah. I, th I mean, I know I do. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about other people. I mean, it's really strange that the whole letters thing, because I never talked about it with anybody like if huh. you came over to my place you would see them hung and framed on my wall yeah but i never talked about it and then toronto life did a profile on me um a, like they were doing this series on people who collect weird and or wonderful things and the editor found mm. out that i had this collection she was like can we send somebody over to interview and photograph i was like okay fine and so you know toronto life has a huge readership yeah and so i was a bit nervous because sometimes their pieces are a little bit like you know you make fun of them the next day at the water cooler yeah. so i was worried how it was going to come out but it was a really great piece and it was really well received and then i was like nobody knew yesterday and now everybody knows yeah and it was okay but like i'd never really talked about it before it was just something i did we all kind of have our proclivities and our hobbies and things that we like and yeah that i mean it's not like i thought it was strange it was just it never came up <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm still kind of getting used to even just like 
talking to people about the letters because huh. it was always something that I just yours they were they were mine and yeah. it was always something that I did and that I enjoyed I enjoyed collecting them. I enjoyed going to flea markets. I enjoyed the letters, but I just never really talked about it. Sure. And so all these ideas that I kind of have, like, you should have, like, a museum. Do this thing. and do that. Yeah. yeah, and I'm just like, I should think about this. I'm, you know, it's like, it's all kind of new to me. Yeah. So. Uh, you've, you've traveled all over the place. Yeah. Um, I'm very nomadic. Yeah. But let's let's talk, I mean, you you... Is it fair to say you grew up? Is it in Montreal or in just in Quebec? Or so I like? was I was born in Trois Rivières, okay. which is like outside of Montreal. Uh-huh. But I grew up in Montreal okay. and moved here when I was a teenager. Okay, yeah. Montreal, Toronto. What are the what are the differences? What are the good things about the cities? What are the things you well, hate about the city? That's a huge loaded question, yeah. my friend. <laughs> I'm about to start like a city war here. Um, but basically, I mean. It's funny, growing up in Montreal, we always used to make fun of Toronto. Sure. You know, les moody anglophones, and, you know, you'd make jokes. And then you move to Toronto, and you're like, this place is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I feel like Montreal has the culture of Canada, and Hmm. uh, it's the Europe of North America. Um, I love the fact that, um, you, you know, they used to speak French in New Orleans, but they didn't protect it. And now everybody there speaks English. You yeah. know, but it was like French, at least in, you know, Quebec has been protected. And also, what's the other problem? Isn't it like New Brunswick or something? Where they also pr- speak yeah, yeah, French? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that. Um, Toronto is obviously where all the industry is, but I, f- I feel like Toronto is like Brooklyn and, and Montreal, oh, wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Toronto just feels like a small Brooklyn to me. Okay. So, so I love it. Like I love Brooklyn. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And so I love that about Toronto. There's a lot of interesting things happening here and I don't at present want to live anywhere else. But mm. if the opportunity arose to move back to Montreal, yeah. you know, cheap rent, sure. <laughs> artists everywhere. You know, so. Why Why try? Was it family? You came with your family here? or Yeah, I moved own? when okay. I was a teenager. So my yeah. father was transferred here. Okay. And so we moved here. And um, yeah, we, we, we he was transferred a lot. So yeah. we, we moved around a lot. But yeah. Was it... Was it is it called couch surfing? What is it you do? You couch, do surf. couch surfing. Couch surfing is and house couch? sitting. House sitting. Is that yeah. how you traveled? Uh, for a long time. Yeah. yeah. I actually still do house sitting. How do you? How did you f- <clears throat> discover that? So it's a long story. I um, wish I was so much younger. I'll <laughs> try to be as brief as possible. Yeah. But it was born out of the fact that I'm a cash poor writer. You mm-hmm. know, I'm always in dire straits. Writers sure, don't sure. make a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But I wanted to travel, but I just didn't want to pay for hotels i didn't even hostels i used to do hosteling a lot but even that just got to it was getting on my tits man like it was just like you know you get like these 19 year old boys from like essex who are like you know they're on like a mini break from the uk and all they want to do in the hostel dorms is like burp and fart and talk about boobs and i was just like i like i couldn't do it anymore and in my 20s it was hilarious and then when you get older you're just like nope (laughs) so i wanted to travel um and i just didn't want to break the bank doing it so so Couchsurfing is like a website. Anybody can sign up for it. And people who have a spare Chesterfield, a spare room, a spare mattress, a spare sleeping bag, whatever, mm-hmm. where in, in every city all around the world, uh, they let travelers stay at their place. Um, it's not really I wouldn't look at it as like a free place to stay, even though it is free, because like it's less about like I want a free night. Mm-hmm. It's more about like I want to meet people while mm. I'm traveling. I want to make new friends. I want to see each city the way that the locals see it. Yeah. And so some of the best friends that I've made in my life are oh, people wow. that I surfed at. I surfed their Chesterfield, yeah. you know, Um and now, now that I've, I've lived like all around the world as well, I knew that whenever I moved to a city, I knew at least one person nearby where yeah. if the fit hit the shan, yeah. <laughs> as they say, I would know somebody nearby. And so I, I, I've made friends oh, wow. all over the world that way. And then couch surfing kind of naturally gave way to house sitting. Because couchsurfing is great for like two, three days, but you can't stay for a long period of time. No, it's a little ridiculous. So house sitting is like, you know, rich people, when they're going on holiday, they look for someone like me to look after their cats with renal failure. So (laughs) I I think I read that. What was up with that? Like, Um, did they tell you our cat is sick? Yeah, of course they do. They tell you way ahead of time, of course, because you have to be able to manage all those situations. But um, yeah, so what was great for me was 
you know, I lived in Brussels and Amsterdam and London and Paris and Copenhagen and Berlin and Vienna and all these other cities mm-hmm. uh, like Enkhausen, which is an hour outside of Amsterdam and Helsingborg, which is um, a, a couple hours away. It's in Sweden, but it's a couple hours from Copenhagen in mm. Denmark. Um, I got to live in all these places for free. And like I got to live I got to see the cities the way the locals, because Paris can be like such like a tourist trap, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But I got to see the Paris that the locals sees because like I was going grocery shopping with the locals and I was mm-hmm. using the post office and I was using the metro and I was I had a local patisserie and I had a local you know um, cafe and um, I was meeting people. I was like I knew like the guy behind the, my regular cafe. We became friends and stuff like that. And like you you meet people in the quartier, you know. So um, it was really important for me to get to know these cities this i just didn't want to keep moving every three days Mm. you know and there was a point in my life when i was living in europe and i didn't have any money and i couldn't afford to pay rent anymore so i just just decided to do house sitting long term and i did it back to back to back to back to back house sits for three years wow yeah i didn't pay rent for three years Mm. i literally just whenever a new house sitting gig came up i'd go on the website hustle 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 yeah get myself another gig and just like and And do you get paid for house sitting on sometimes okay so sometimes you have to negotiate that right Ah, so sometimes i'd get paid yeah sometimes uh they would leave me their bicycles or their metro passes so i could get around sometimes they'd stock the fridge before i arrived or they would they would take me grocery shopping or they would leave me like a grocery gift card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has happened a few times where they left me the keys to their cars. Although like I never use their cars yeah. because everyone in Europe drives stick and I'm like, yeah. I'm automatic or die <laughs> type gal. <laughs> wow. So um, yeah. The, and the, for example, I'm do, I'm actually going to be house sitting in Montreal. Uh, I'm, I leave on Saturday and I'm oh, going wow. to be there for until the 15th. And that's a paid that's a paid gig. Oh my goodness. And they're paying for my travel there as well. So, because like now that I've been doing it for so long, yeah. I, my, my list of references is just page You're after five star house sitter. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I can manage any, you know, I've dealt with animals with severe, um, medical issues mm-hmm. and like, I've done it all over the world. I have glowing references. I know what I'm doing. I've got, I've got it down to an exact science. I'm trustworthy. I'm neat. I'm clean. So, and it's great for, you know, because I can do my job anywhere. Yeah. You know? As a writer, all I need is Wi-Fi and a cup of coffee. And, and I you're can good to go. work anywhere. And that's what I did. Like when I was bouncing around Europe house sitting. Yeah. I was I was writing in all these places. So Neat. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Let's talk about some of your uh, stuff online and your writing and stuff. Um, Martin. How do you say his last name? Shkreli? Oh, Shkreli. Shkreli. <laughs> Shkreli. You want to talk about Twitter? That, 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 that Twitter. Yeah, so he's like he's known as like the most the hated guy. Bro. Yeah, yeah he's, he's he's the guy who like yeah. raised his prices or yeah, whatever. Yeah, he bought like a uh, uh, the patent to an HIV AIDS retroviral, and he jacked up the price. It was like from seven dollars to like four hundred dollars or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so people couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, and he's known as Farmer Bro. He owns apparently the only copy of like some Wu Tang album. That's, that's right. Only, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's now he's, he's behind bars now um, because uh, for I think it was securities fraud or something. Oh, I can't wow. remember exactly what it was, but some kind of fraud. And so he, he'll be in jail for a long time. He's known to uh, stalk journalists and okay, yeah, and that he was banned from Twitter for stalking journalists. But basically, this was about two years ago. Um, he was actually it was tweeting at a journalist. Uh, comrade of mine comrade okay. <laughs> like it's a uh, it's very red soviet <laughs> union over here but he was tweeting at her and he was saying abusive things to her so i can't remember what i tweeted at him um basically i think i just said something to him like like dude you need to chill out yeah and he tweeted back at me uh your eyebrows look like two pokemon i'm gonna throw two red balls at you lmfao yeah and so i tweeted back at him my eyebrows are longer than your dick and then like the and then the like the flame war started going and back and forth. And this is like I'm verified now, but this is before I was verified. So I don't even know how he even saw my tweets because he gets like all like these, it must be all these stream. like, you know, white fapping jabronis who are just like his his fanboys or like, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, full of, uh, in his mentions, you know, so 
I was actually surprised he tweeted, but he kept coming at me. You know, he kept saying things to me like, like, uh, I don't understand. One time he tweeted at me, I don't understand. And I was like, you should have that written on a T-shirt, <laughs> you know? And then he wrote back, huh? And I was like, and there's the back of the T-shirt. <laughs> you know, anyways, but it, um, the, it was, it's just funny kind of how, um, People always tend to say stuff about my eyebrows. I turned it into a piece for the New York Times. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, so so tell me about this. Um, like, when did you feel uh, self-conscious about your eyebrows? Um, from a very young age. Yeah? Like growing up in Quebec, um, mm. everybody, all the kids on the playground and in my neighborhood were Quebecois. So, you know, they had pale French skin and beautiful green eyes and adorable freckles. Mm -hmm. And then there was me with my (laughs) caterpillars. (laughs) They're like these hirsute demons that are like burning a bushy path across my (laughs) face. And so you laugh about it now. Now I laugh about it. But like it's still, you know, I I giggle about it, but it's uh, a part of me is still cringing Mm. a a bit. Um, You know, when the 90s hit. And, you know, the, 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 the thing was to have, like, super, super thin eyebrows, like, like Marlena Dietrich, you know. And so I plucked these things within an inch of my life. Wow. You know, this one looked like the long division symbol, and this one looked like the square root symbol. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, but still, I would get these mildly racist comments from people about my features. You huh. know, people would say things like, oh, where are you from? And I'd be like, oh, I'm from trois And they'd be like, no, where are you really from? Yeah. And I was like. You know, like th- like these mildly racist things where it's like they want to exoticize you and fetishize you and put you in this box and call you other. Um, and it got to the point where I was like, I-, I-, I did everything I could to change myself and I still wasn't being accepted. You know, I, I was tired of ask- answering questions about the nature of my features rather than the nature of like my courage and my resiliency mm. and my spirit. You know, and I and let me tell you, I am the nicest, sweetest, most rage filled person I know. <laughs> so <laughs> so in my late 20s, I was like, you know what? I'm grown back in these bad boys. And like if anybody thinks I'm ugly because I have thick eyebrows, then they can do one because like I'm awesome. And if you don't want awesome in your life, that's your problem. Yeah. You know, so I grew them in and then the bane of my existence somehow turned into like my greatest asset, you know. Mm. Now it's like literally within the first few minutes of meeting someone new, if it's platonic, professional, romantic, whatever. Yeah. The first things out of their mouth is like nice eyebrows. And I'll be like, I grow them myself. (laughs) (laughs) They came with the body. Like it's a weird thing to compliment somebody on. But like the Martin Shkreli thing, like they're my secret weapon. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've even had um, there's a a street artist in Amsterdam uh, who I'm friendly with. And he wants to yeah, tell me about it. that was that was interesting to read that. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, I'll, I'll give you the Coles notes version. But I was this is around the time when I had no money and I was bouncing around Europe and yeah. I was house sitting in Amsterdam. And I, I was a, it was a really sad period of my life because I'd just broken up with this guy. And so I, I was alone. I was broke. I had nowhere to live. And so I, I was wandering around Amsterdam in a daze and I turned this corner and then up on the wall in big black lettering, I saw someone had spray painted, I'll carve your soul into mine. And there was a tag underneath it that said laser 314. And so that was the artist tag. And Mm. then every corner I turned in Amsterdam, I would find something that he had spray painted. Like you wanted control. Now control wants you. Mm. After love comes new love. And it was like, did he know I was coming to Amsterdam? (laughs) Because like these words were like soothing. And they were like healing me. And they, they, I really loved them. So I found, um, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. So I, I searched for uh, him online and I found on Facebook he had an artist page. Yeah. So I'd been taking photographs of all of, you know, his poetry. So I sent him some of the photographs I had taken. And then he actually wrote back. Yeah. And then we struck up this correspondence and, you know, telling each other about our lives and whatever. And I told him, you know, that I had just come from a really bad breakup. And he was like, you, I can't imagine you'd ever be in want of a man, especially with eyebrows like that. <laughs> You know, and so uh, we we kind of became friendly yeah. so much so that he eventually gave me the street name Brows. 
So okay. I, I like to think that yeah. if I ever did graffiti, like that would be my tag. That'd be your tag browse. browse. Laser 314 and browse. Browse with a Z or? With, with an S. With an S, no, okay. proper English. Oh, proper. <laughs> even for a Dutchman. <laughs> um, anyways, I ended up leaving Amsterdam, but I, I, every opportunity I got, I would go back. And every time I was in town, I would message him and be like, hey, I'm in town. And be like, hey, browse. Here's the latest locations of my work. Go photograph. Go have fun. Okay. And that's what I would do all day is I would just wander the streets of Amsterdam photographing his poetry and it was so great. I just yeah. loved it so much. Anyways, I eventually decided after a few years of being a peripatetic waif that I was going to go back to, I was going to return to Canada. Yeah. But not before one final trip to Amsterdam. And I messaged him and I was like, hey, I'm in town. And he was like, hey, Browse. He's like, here's the latest locations of my work. So he sent me to like 12 pieces that day. Yeah. And the very last piece that I found, I turned a corner and up on the wall in big black lettering, I found... Her brows were all it took. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> it was like, it was like one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me. Like it was just so lovely. And I just, I felt like, like I never met him. That's a poster you make, right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but like I didn't know him. I yeah. didn't know what he looked like. It, yeah. At the time I didn't even know his real name. Okay. But it was just so nice that like you can make these connections with people. Mm-hmm. And he was just really lovely about it. And so uh, I did eventually meet him. You okay. Know? And okay. Um, he, uh, he, uh, a publisher published a, like a coffee table book of all of like, f- of all of his pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, one day I was going to meet up with him, but he, we, it was miscommunication and I just missed him. So he left a book for me behind the bar at this place and he like autographed it. He was like, happy birthday browse. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, left me a book of his. So I have that on my coffee table. Oh, now. that's so cool. Yeah, I know. It's lovely. Uh, Another street artist, Banksy. Mm-hmm. Um, you had an issue with his. Uh, it's, I guess it's not. It wasn't his, but they had an exhibition, a Banksy here exhibition yeah. here in Toronto. Yeah. And I disagreed with you. Did you? Yeah. Really? On the yeah, yeah. Okay, so so here, so let me tell you my thinking. Sure. So I don't know if I've ever seen a Banksy like a real one, like out in the wild, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then I think I read, I don't know if you, was it a blog post you wrote? I think I or? just wrote about it on Facebook. Yeah. I think I just wrote a and Facebook And so I post. read that I go, That's, and I said, I see where you're coming from, but I would have never seen a Banksy if the exhibit had not shown up in Toronto. I'd learned even though there's Banksy's here in Toronto? So I don't even know that. You didn't know that? No. He came here in 2010. What the heck? Okay, yeah. so <laughs> what, you have to tell me where these are. I'll tell you. Yeah. There's one not far from here. Okay. Yeah, there's one that's just around the corner from yeah. the... So, I mean, to learn about, you know, the, the history of him and how he got started and, yeah. and you know, the parties he used to throw and all that sort of stuff. I learned. I felt. I felt. I learned a lot from it. And now I understand the whole commercial aspect and mm-hmm. whether or not. And I've you know talked with friends. I go, yeah, but he was, he was a, a business person, a businessman himself. You know, he did these things to make money and so on and so forth. But but tell me why you didn't. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Graffiti by nature mm-hmm. is site specific. Okay. Um, and it's ephemeral. Um, when you remove it from its site specific. Um, nature and put it up on a blank museum or gallery wall. Yeah, it loses all context. So when Banksy is doing pieces, and now he's always been um, a, a, like, you, we want you want to call it street art, you want to call it vandalism, whatever. He's always been very anti-establishment, sure. and a lot of his pieces are poking fun at capitalism and consumerism. Mm-hmm. So one of his pieces is even like, I can't believe people pay money for this shit, and that's one of his pieces. There's another piece where it's these children saluting a flag, but you look at the flag, and it's actually a plastic shopping bag for Tesco, which is the largest grocery chain in the UK. Yeah. you know, um, and 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 like the name of that piece is. Um, what, what was it like because the tesco slogan is every, every little every little help so i think it was i think his the name of that piece was very little helps okay. you know what i mean anyways um my problem with that exhibition was that it removed uh all of the sort of ephemeral qualities that come with street art mm. i I couldn't enjoy seeing screen prints of his stuff, especially when a lot of those things I've actually found in the wild, as I call it. You know, I lived in London for a long time. Um, So there's Banksy's like in every corner of London and throughout the UK, there's Banksy's. I found Banksy's in New York. I found them in uh, all across Europe. Um, I found them in Miami. You know, I found Banksy's like all over the world Mm -hmm. and there's nothing it feels like a scavenger hunt there's nothing better than finding them on the street i feel like 
when you have to pay thirty five dollars mm-hmm. to go in, like I've never seen so much, so many goddamn Banksies in like one area mm-hmm. at once. Like the amount of like the minions that they had working to get these things like yeah. printed and like in frame and whatever. It it felt this is the. I'm sure it's much different. This is the antithesis of Banksy's ethos. It's Mm. the absolute antithesis of it. There's no way that, I mean, a lot of shows that have Banksy's are not authorized by him. So that didn't necessarily bother me that this was unauthorized. I didn't really care about that. It was more just like, this feels disingenuous. This isn't what street art is about. What happens to street art when it's not on the street? You know what I mean? This isn't uh, uh, Banksy has done gallery shows for sure. He's done like and whatever, but that's different when it's you know when he's associated with it. Mm. You know, artists need to eat, so it doesn't bother me that they do a gallery show because they need to make money just like everybody else. I don't care about that when it's unauthorized and when it's the the price is so steep and when it it. It, it just, it, it lacked authenticity mm. to me. So I just really didn't appreciate it. But you have to understand, I'm also a street art snob. I've been hunting, <laughs> I've been hunting graffiti and street yeah. art for decades. Yeah. You know, like I know the best. this I'm, was way too easy to see all of them in one spot. It was way too easy. It felt like people, you know, most of the people who attended that aren't the type of people who would join me in graffiti alley at midnight and hunting like the some of the best street art i found is the stuff that was hidden behind a dumpster or down an alleyway you know in an uh, in a seedy part of town Mm -hmm. you know people who went to go see that show they want to go see it because banksy is you know instagrammable but Mm. not because they actually care about you know what he has to say about um consumerism and poverty and war proliferation and you know politics and parliament and you know and uh, political affairs and all that. Fair enough. I'm just checking to see if she's here, so don't oh, okay. don't think I'm being rude. If I t- <laughs> okay. if if I turn around, could you see though the, the way people were? Could you see that maybe someone like myself or others who don't understand the culture go and maybe gain some appreciation? Sure. Yeah. I think if you're like a novice to kind of e- even like the art world in general, yeah, I can see the benefit for it. Yeah. I think. But even when I go to like, you know, the modern museum of art, you know, even when I go to that, um, there's, uh, the shows are, uh, they're around a theme. Like artists usually do pieces on a theme Mm. and Banksy's theme has always been anti-establishment. So it just like, if you're actually interested in knowing anything about Banksy, it's, you'll learn so much more by beating the street. You know what I mean? Like beat the street, go into the, back alleyways go behind the dumpsters you know go in the places that everyone else is too afraid to go and that you'll you'll get a better education that way than paying 35 dollars for an unauthorized <laughs> gallery show you know um this whole i i, I don't want to talk lightly what let, let, let me let me let me put it this way we're we're living in in, in the in this hashtag me too time mm-hmm. um you know even now you know, the Republicans are trying to get Mueller for, they're, they're trying to plant a story, whatever the case is. Um, you you wrote a piece in the Walrus last month, this month? Uh, it was a couple Recently, weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, about your assault and your experience with the justice system. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, it seems to me, that assault is one of is, is something that the justice system hasn't has, has has never come to grips with to understand how to deal mm-hmm. with that in a way that tries to understand what the victim has gone through, mm-hmm. um, and it's always been about well we're all about proof, and and it's like assault is one of the is like it's probably the hardest thing to prove. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what have you what did you learn from from that experience and is there any hope that we could figure out a system that can take into account the the intricacies of of you know being assaulted and how you go about quote unquote proving that well i mean i don't think it's my job to give hope cuz mm. i don't think i that takes a bigger woman than me mm. to be able to give any hope. Fair. What I will say and what you're talking about in terms of proof and being able to prove it, 
assault, especially gendered assault, so violence against women, whether mm-hmm. that's physical assault, sexual assault, whatever. It's interesting to me that when it comes to something like uh, murder, all it takes is an eyewitness account to convict somebody. But when I'm giving testimony, I'm an eyewitness account. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, it's he said, she said. Testimony is evidence. Mm. That is proof. And people like to negate the power of testimony and they try to, um, you know, um, discredit witnesses and all that jazz. But what... Uh, what is extremely hurtful is that the, co- the, the, the burden of proof that is required for people, you know, uh, who want to go to the police and, and press charges is greater than other types of crimes for theft, um, for murder, um, for um, non-gendered assault, uh, for arson. The, the, the burden of proof is much lower, but mm. because uh, the justice system and which was the laws under which we exist were fashioned by men and they fashioned it without, uh, without women in mind, um, and we have to exist under these laws now, it's inherently sexist. Mm. So um, the only way to, I mean, if you want to talk about hope, I mean, the only way to beat the sort of system that we have in place now is to change the laws. And how do we get that? We get uh, learned uh, people uh, who are not, you know, cishet white men uh, who are making these laws. We need people with different diverse uh, backgrounds, people who understand um, uh, people who understand how uh, oppression is layered. So if you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, if you're a woman of color who is um, uh, uh, disabled, if you're a woman of color who is disabled and also gay, like or or transgender or whatever, all Mm -hmm. all of these uh, all of these serve to oppress you. I think there needs to be more voices like that who are fashioning the laws and that who people who genuinely understand how trauma affects testimony and 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 why witnesses don't come forward right away yeah you know the, the during the whole me too movement i'm constantly hearing people why did they wait so long to come forward you know why didn't they go to the police right away and whatever it's like okay well i went to the police right away like they came within like you know 10 minutes of my assault and i went through the justice system and nothing happened and staying silent would have yielded the exact same results as mm. going through the system so don't tell so, wh- so how can i look any woman in the eye and tell her she should report her assault mm-hmm. because most of the time they're deemed as unfounded as the globe and mail um reported on last year um uh the that was reported about your no no not about mine but okay. in, the globe and mail did a massive report last year the mm-hmm. series was called unfounded and oh, what they okay. found was is that the police in an overwhelming majority um disregard uh sexual assault cases oh. as unfounded and so they're just dropped uh for no other particular reason than you know uh that's there's they don't actually have to give their reasoning on why they just think something is unfounded hmm. um and so uh women's cases are not the, uh, the assailants they're not being charged um the the if they are charged they're not going uh to trial mm-hmm. if they do go to trial they're not resulting in convictions and so there's in any other sort of crime um people are believed this is the one crime where women which is overwhelming women are the victims and they're not believed because society treats women as we are inherently liars and women are not to be believed did you have an opinion on Gian Gomeshi's lawyer um it's 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 a strange thing like uh, one part of me, like I, I hold two dual thoughts in my head at the same time yeah. about her, Marie Heinen. Yeah, me. yeah. One, uh, she should be allowed to do her job, is is one thought that I keep in my head. Yeah. The other thought is, she did her job in a manner that set women back, hmm. and told Canada at large that they should not believe women and that women victims are not to be believed and that there's collusion and that women are conspirators and this that and whatever Mm -hmm. and I both thoughts are valid and I hold both of them in my head I have a I I don't really have a a sway one way to the other about that because it it she calls herself a feminist and more power to her Mm -hmm. but 
the way that that trial played out was, and, and the tactics that she used to discredit Gomeshi's victims yeah. was wholly unfeminist. And it's, it's strange for me to say that because Gomeshi was a friend of mine. I used Whoa. To, yeah, I used to go to his house. Like, he used to have these great Christmas parties every year. I was mm -hmm. invited every year to his Christmas parties at his house. Do you think he... Do you think he has the right to come back and work? Um, in, in the media? No. No. No, you had that shot, buddy, and you blew it. Okay. So you don't get to come back and work in the media. You can go and be a laborer in the field. Yeah. You can go you sell insurance, become an engineer, mm -hmm. do something else. But you had your shot in the media, and not only did you abuse your power, but... Um, you, well, no, that's the pinnacle of it. You that's abused it. your power. Yeah. You abused your power in a manner that is so disgraceful and it polarized not just Toronto, but it polarized Canada, it polarized North America, considering that that essay he just wrote for the New York Review of Books was published in the United States yeah. and resulted in that editor-in-chief having to leave his position for agreeing to publish that essay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, no, he, he's able to, he, he can go and make money any way he sees fit, but he is not welcome in the, in the realm of media anymore. Hmm. There's no way. No. Interesting. No, he can go do one. <laughs> 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 he can piss off. Yeah. I, I've never heard someone say that because there's, oh man, what's that comedian's name? He just started working again in New York. Oh, oh Louis C.K.? Louis C.K. So outrageous. Like he, ad it's so funny. He admitted yeah. to every, all the women who said that he had not only like uh, with, n without consent, masturbated in front of them and on them mm -hmm. and then frightened them so that they couldn't even work in like the, uh, as comedians anymore. Yeah. He admitted to all of that. Mm -hmm. And that was like less than a year ago. And mm -hmm. already he's like, welcome back to the comedy clubs. Yes, come do a set, Louis C.K. Just please don't like come all over my face. Mm. You know what I mean? It's disgraceful. It's, it's, it's outrageous. You want to make money? Go ahead and make money any way you can. But you're not welcome back here. You blew your shot at this. Go do something else. Go find else. something else to Go do. Go find something else. Because you have a long life ahead of you. You still have more years ahead than behind. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can do anything. Go teach languages. Go go study Latin in Rome or something. But you don't get to be a stand-up comedian again where you can do what you did before yeah. to more women because there's nothing to stop you from continuing your to toxic behavior. Yeah. I've never heard that argument. That's very interesting. I've always heard of can he or can he not do that? And the argument has always been, yes, he can, second chances, or... No, he can't. It's so interesting to me, though, how people are so they're so eager to grant second chances to these men. Mm. When Monica Lewinsky, it took her twenty years oh, before she could even speak in the public realm anymore without being assaulted with and tomatoes. She didn't even do anything. She didn't even do anything. It was Bill Clinton who abused his power with her and then lied about it to like his uh, the people in his country, and he was impeached for it. But Monica Lewinsky was bullied and targeted, and she was the subject of like she was pulled was it by the fbi or by the cia i can't remember when they pulled her aside for like this like 12 hour 14 hour interrogation or something mm. where she was petrified she thought her parents were being arrested she but bill clinton oh everyone loves him now um but monica Lewinsky still cannot do a single ted talk without someone wanting to ask her about bill clinton getting his dick sucked like, I'm sorry, but women, the way that women are not welcome back into the public sphere the way that men are. And Louis C.K. hasn't even been a year. And already it's <laughs> like, come on back, Jean Gomeshi. It's been four years. Come on back, buddy. Four years already. I remember. Yeah, it was, Octo it was October 2004. She's not back. I'm looking for you. That is nuts. <laughs> I, I hear this knocking on the window. So I'm always yeah, it's just, it's just them. <laughs> um I want to end this on a positive note. It sounds like we've, we've <laughs> Has it already been? Like, how long have we been chatting for? Oh, just under an hour. Wow. Um, goes by quickly. Yeah. Um, what's the favorite? Okay, so you've, you've, you, we've talked about your writing, and, and you've, you know, you've said that you've been a playwright and novelist. Um, spoken word. Yeah. You've done, you've done like moth. I've done the moth, yeah. You know, that's like, it's once, huge. once you, you, you can retire now. You've done the moth. <laughs> you would think. But. What's, what's the difference between writing when it's just you and a piece of paper or you and a typewriter, you and a keyboard versus 
there's you, there's a mic, but then there's like people just watching you. Yeah. So I, I, I talk about this a lot. When it's really easy for a writer to be vulnerable on the page because there's no one there. And you can, mm. like Ernest Hemingway once, once wrote, uh, there's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. And it's true. You know, you can bear yourself on the page. Yeah. And I've always been really comfortable being honest in that manner in my writing. When there's people in front of you, it becomes a lot more difficult because I don't like being vulnerable in front of people. It's the reason why I never became an actress. You know, I mm. studied theater in university, yeah. but I didn't become an actress because I just don't like going there in front of people. I feel like now they know something about me and they're going to judge me ah. and I don't like them understanding the nature of my soul and dissecting it while I'm standing right in front of them. Mm. But storytelling is interesting because it kind of combines my love of performance and my love of writing together, right? Okay. So it's... It, life storytelling is always a, a true story from your own life so it's not like it, it's not you know fashion it's not made up um, so you know the story anyways but there is something in performance that you can't just like recite the story and, because otherwise people don't care there has to be something within as you're telling the story that connects you with someone else you know mm. some people use humor some people um, uh, have really long pregnant pauses and whatever I think I try and do both yeah. <laughs> but every time I've done a spoken word piece people are coming up to me afterwards and the things you know, the way that you can connect with someone else um, when you're standing right in front of them, you don't get that when you're writing. A whole bunch of people, like thousands of people, read my walrus story on yeah. my assault. And a lot of them wrote me letters about it, but they're not right in front of you holding your hand and like while their lower lip is trembling and like their nose is stinging and like, uh. you know what I mean? Mm. So it's... Uh, Wrapping all that together, I, earlier this year, I did a spoken word piece in London, and that was the first time I spoke about my assault. I didn't even, I didn't even think I was going to talk about it. I just showed up, and then they told me what the theme of the night was, and I was like, okay, I'll speak on it. So I told my story. Wow. There was an intermission, and then a girl afterwards, and then after intermission, a girl went up, and she told her story, which is very similar, mm -hmm. uh, her story of assault. So after the whole show was over, I went up to her and I was like, hey, great job. Our stories were kind of similar. And she was like, yeah, I, I wasn't going to go up and speak. But when I heard your story, that made me want to put my name down on the list. And so women telling stories can inspire other women to tell their stories and can, um, you know, vo women's voices beget women's voices, mm. you know. And if I can do anything which encourages more women to share their stories because our stories matter, I, I'm, I'm going to do that. So, do you have hope for the future? In in what manner? What do you mean? <laughs> it's it's we, like we live in it's seemingly dark times. Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you do you see you know as as an artist as a woman as a feminist do you see light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, uh, not in the near future. Hmm. I think that it's always darkest before the dawn, right? You kind of have to go through one thing to get it's to... It's going to be darker? It's going to be darker Jeez. before we get to... I mean, if you have to learn from history, man. Mm. Like, right now, um, I would say 2018 is about 1931. And so, it was, what was it, 1933 when the Nazis came to power? Mm. And so, yeah, we have, a, we have a little bit to go before we're uh, all shoved into concentration camps but i think it's happening we already have concentration camps it's already happening children are being separated Separating from their kids. parents yeah um and you know with that caravan that's coming from you know uh, guatemala up to the united states border those people are going to be shoved in camps people are going to be denied their civil rights we see it in canada too um i don't uh, especially the way that we treat uh you know asylum seekers in Canada and refugee claimants in Canada. It's quite poor. The way we treat our own First Nations population is quite mm. poor. Um, it's going to get really bad before we get to the other end. Uh, I can't really offer you any immediate hope in the moment. Just because like, I'm a, I'm a student of history. Mm. And if you know anything from your history, you know that it repeats itself. We don't learn from history. We always say never again. Yeah, It'll happen again. Mm. So keep keep your wits about you the only way that we're going to get through it is if we stick together so 
Well, let's hope, Christine, that we... That <laughs> I know we... you want to end on like a hopeful <laughs> note. I am not here to offer you any hope. I am offering you... I'm, I'm letting you know uh, this is like as a woman... If you if if you haven't been listening community before, you should listen now because we've been seeing this for years, mm. and only now people are paying attention. So, well, I'll I'll I, I'm gonna hope that you will accept <laughs> to come back again. Oh, I will. This was fun. <laughs> and, and and when you come back, hopefully it won't be too distant future, and we can talk about hope. <laughs> we can talk about hope. The audacity of hope. Yes. Someone should write a book. With, with that title. I think that's been taken. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, if you want to hear more independent podcasts like this one, go to girthradio.com. Uh, thank you to the Pacific Junction Hotel Bar here at King & Sherborne in Toronto. You can find more information and follow me on Twitter at Kareem Kanji. Uh, Christine, do you want more followers, more people to come and check you yes, out? Yes, please follow me on Twitter, Christine Estima. And you've got the blue check mark. I've got a verified blue check mark. Nice. <laughs> and if you liked this conversation, uh, go back to creamkanji.com and check out uh, other conversations uh, such as my chats with Kelly McCormick and Megan Hutchings. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>